Awesome. Well, if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to continue on, or excuse me, chapter 3. We're going to be moving on to chapter 3 tonight. You know, what a powerful song it is. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm not quoting it. I'm just kind of giving the gist of it. It's, um, it's your nature. It's God's nature to make the desert bloom again, to bring restoration to our hearts. That's what God is all about. God is about taking what is dead and making it alive, taking that which is broken and mending it and healing it. That's the nature of God. And I just want to challenge you that if there is something that's broken, maybe in your marriage or in your life or in a child's life, let's believe God that he will heal and he will restore because, church, that's his nature, isn't it? And so we look forward to, thank you, by the way, Pastor Mary. We look forward to heaven in which all of that is completely restored. But between now and then, Let's pray that God will restore things in our life. He will restore the things that the devil has stolen, that the locusts have eaten, Joel, we're, look, we're, we're talking about there. But this is the nature of God to do this. So just keep that in mind because tonight as we're talking about this idea of restoration, let's realize that when our lives are, are committed to him, when the spirit of God comes in us, the spirit of life, comes into that which is dead, we become alive, and we become a different person. You became a different person. I became a different person. When I, asked, when I received Christ by faith, and he came into me, the Lord of life came into me, and I was changed. And the sad truth is, though, that many in our day say, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I don't know their heart, but I see their life, and their life just absolutely does not line up with the word. And I just want to encourage us, church, let's understand that religion sells. It still sells in America. Doing what is good and loving, at least according to our definitions, not ours meaning Christians, but the world's definitions, that sells. It sells in politics. It sells in business. It sells in marketing. And everywhere you go, this type of stuff sells. Do you realize that nearly every president of the United States has said, I'm a Christian, and yet when you listen to conversations that they've had in private, they throw the F-bomb around frequently, they live deplorable lives, they talk like you, you're just stunned at how they talk. And let me just tell you this, in politics, and I want to just start by saying this is not a political sermon, Okay. This is not a political sermon. I said that last week, and I think I kept my word. It was no political. I'm talking about politics right now, but it's not a political sermon. I just I need us to realize that religion sells, and that is unfortunate because as a church, if we're not careful, we will be duped by people who say, I'm a Christian, vote for me. Large churches backing candidates up, and I'm not saying that they're not Christians, church, because they dropped the F-bomb, but... When you look at the rest of your life, you, you step back and say, is this the type of person whose life certainly doesn't seem to match what they say? Do, do I vote for them because of what they say? What, what else is, is, is hypocritical here? And I'm just challenging this church. It is too easy for us to be duped by what people say because religion sells. And that's how many people have been 
voted into presidency. President Obama claimed that he was a Christian, and then years later we find out during his presidency exactly what church he goes to, and oh my goodness, black liberation theology, liberalism, it was, it was deplorable, and yet people bought it, well, he's a Christian, so we're going to vote for him. And then I, and I can go on the other side, Republicans who have said, oh, I'm a Christian, and you step back and you scratch your head and you just go, really? Religion sells. Giving free money away. That sells. Now, granted, you're giving free money away to many illegal immigrants with the hope that maybe five years or so down the road, maybe when they become citizens, they will vote for me because I gave them free money. Free money sells. Doing good. Oh, it, it looks so nice. What's on the outward, church, is not always what's on the inward. People can have a form of godliness, but deny its power. You know, most of us in America, did you realize that 65% of the people in America claim to be Christians? Now, that used to be 80%. It's now 65%. When I was growing up, it was 80%. It's now 65%. 30% are either atheists or what they call none. That is, they, are no, they have no religious affiliation. Many of the young people in our day are none, N-O-N-E-S, as long as you understand what word I'm using here. And I, I would say then about that leaves 5% of other religions. So 65% claim to be Christians. So if you want people to vote for you, all you got to do what? Is just, I, I'm a Christian. We need to be able to step back and we need to say, does their life and what they say line up with what I read in this book? Now, I realize that we're not always going to have an opportunity to vote a wonderful, godly man into the presidency. I understand that. But as Christians, we need to be aware. We need to be with, with eyes wide open about what's really going on. Because religion, doing good, an outward form of godliness, sells still in America. Now, last week, we looked more at what people believe concerning truth. This week, we're going to look more at how they live. And I mentioned to you that the reason why Paul talks so much about, but what do you believe? What is the truth that you proclaim? It's because what we believe eventually impacts the way we live. It's not just a nice little uh, idi uh, phrase that we throw out there. This is true. What you believe eventually shows in how you live. And they're, they're, these people are no different. In 2 Timothy, the very end of chapter 2, we saw this. Now Paul begins to transition away from what people believe, and he wants to focus on how they live. So follow me as I'm about to read from 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting with verse 1. I'm only going to read the first nine verses. But mark this. But, so this is a transition from what they believe to now how they live. But mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, 
abusive. He actually has a theme here, by the way, if you begin to pick up on it. Disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous. Wow, what a word to throw in there, right? Treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And I would prefer this reading, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness but denying its power have nothing to do with them. They're the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these men oppose the truth. Men of depraved minds who, are, who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. Doesn't sound too inclusive here now, does it? But they will, they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. Now, as we get into this, let's realize when he says, in those days, Excuse me, in the last days. The last days are not the days just before Jesus is coming back. Uh, we can go back to Acts chapter 2. In the last days, God is going to pour out his Holy Spirit. And when did he pour out his Holy Spirit? That very day. Not, not in the days just prior to Jesus coming back, but on the day of Pentecost. That's when the Holy Spirit was poured out. That's when people began prophesying. These are the last days from the first advent, that is from Jesus' resurrection or, or the, the coming of the Holy Spirit to when Jesus comes back. So between the first advent and the second advent, the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus, these are called the last days. We also know that he's not talking about some distant time because he says, Timothy, the people who act this way have nothing to do with them. Well, Timothy would say, well, of course I can't because this isn't going to happen for 2,000 years. So obviously, Paul is saying, Paul is in essence saying, I'm, gonna, I'm about to describe for you what people are like right now. And it's going to happen not just right now. How, how many of you think that our generation is one of the worst generations to walk the face of the earth? Okay. And it's really easy to believe that. And I'm not saying that it's not. But, during, but Timothy and Paul thought the same. Wow, our generation has got to be the worst. The worst. Every generation following. We are in the worst generation ever. The next generation. No, no, no. Mom, dad, now is the, no, this is the worst generation ever. And a couple generations later, it's the worst, right? So it's easy to, I, I get that, because th this is when we're living. This is what we see. We only hear about what happened in the past. And of course, that can't compare to what we're going through right now. Let me just tell you now, let me just tell you this, that all of the sins that are plaguing America today are just simply revisitations. There's nothing new under the sun. No one has created a new sin that I'm aware of. It is in some form, some way or another, just like past sins of other cultures. And God eventually brings judgment on cultures. 
And we see it in the Bible. We see it historically. So, yes, this generation is a bad, wicked generation. And, and I, to this day, I'm still so amazed at how quickly people will run after, swallow lies. But that is just what people will do. And, 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 and I, would, I wish I could say, well, that's just because they're dead in their sins. And, of course, they're going to follow after lies. But even the people in Jesus' church open their ears up and they thought whatever's out there, whatever feels good, whatever they like. Paul, we're going to look at it in a couple of weeks. Paul says, hey, you know what? People just surround themselves with those who talk and say what their itching ears want to hear. And the truth is, our generation is no different than Paul's and Timothy's generation. No different. We're all stuck in these types of sins. Now, if you, if you, if you kind of saw maybe a thread in these sins, you would, you would see that there is this desire for personal pleasures. There's this sense of arrogance. They want to dominate others. It's a get-what-I-want mentality. They even claim to be very independent, and they reject authority. They disobey parents. They've got a one-up on their parents. They know better than their parents. They know better than those who are in authority over them. Church, this is very common for us to always think our president, whatever president is, is in the White House at the time, is stupid. He just doesn't get it. And we can easily think that about any leaders, and it's because we are not in their situation many times. And I'm not, I'm not giving a rain check for, for any president or, or just trying to give them a back door. Presidents do make really bad decisions. They really do. But it's just easy for us, from our recliner, to be able to make judgment calls on anything. This generation, Paul's generation, it was easy for them to just reject any authority. Not just children with their parents, any authority. I know better. Reject the wisdom of the aged. I know better than they do. It's just so common. I know it. They don't. They're not loving. Well, maybe because they misunderstand love. They hold grudges. They speak evil about others. They slander them. They love pleasure more than they love God. And the theme that I am seeing here is this lifting up of self. It is the me generation. Paul lived in a me generation. How many of you think that we live in a me generation? Come on, selfies, I'm not, a, I'm not saying selfies are like of the devil, okay? But, hey, where did that come? I mean, I know people, they take selfies all the time. Some of you have seen movies, what was it? Um, I think it was uh, Jumanji, in which she's just, she's doing selfies like all the time. And this, that's our generation. It's all about me. And everybody in the world needs to know about me. I'm going to put it on Facebook and splatter it on social media. And of course everyone's going to eat it up because everybody loves me, right? Okay. Well, we live in a me generation just as Paul and Timothy lived in a me generation. It's all about me and how, how smart I am. And, and there's arrogance and there's conceit and there's looking down on others. There's looking down on Christians. 
No, you don't know the truth. And when, when wrong is done, of course, you're the one in wrong, and we hold grudges against other people. We don't stop and consider, well, you know what, maybe, maybe I'm the one to blame. And our generation just says, we don't go there. If something happened to me and it hurt me, it must be your fault. But you see, every generation in these last days thinks this way. You know, it's really easy for our generation to say, well, look how far we've come. Look how far fewer wars they are. there are. And you know, when you think back during the past couple of millennia, I am, I am surprised myself with how many empires all they wanted to do was conquer other nations. And I'm just thinking, why do you think this way? And it's because of arrogance. Well, our culture is better. The, the, the Roman Empire, they truly believed their culture was better. And by conquering other nations, they were actually serving those nations. Wow, how deluded and self-conceited can you be? But that was the Roman Empire. They, they, were, they had philosophy and they had all kinds of religions to offer and they had the Pax Romana. They had everything going for them. Their language, people could communicate by speaking Greek. And so every, they were the epitome of God's creation. And of course others needed, whether they knew it or not, they needed to be a... That type of thinking is still prevalent today Except many times, though I'm, I'm not going to say we don't go to war because obviously that just happened this year with in Ukraine. And I, I just step back and I'm thinking, Keaton, what are you thinking? But the truth is, we use diplomacy more now than we did in the past. Now, I like that. I appreciate that. But our generation steps back and they say, we've arrived. See, we know how to talk issues through. Well, if you just even think about that for a moment, do we really? But the result is, we've arrived. And every generation is this, has this arrogant, men, this arrogant mindset that we have arrived. We're, we are the epitome of God's, you know, evolutionary chain of civilization. We are marching forward and we are, people need to be like me. And this is how our generation thinks. It, go, it is so bad, church, that there are many who on the outward, they seem so good. The people here who are described, as you read through this, lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud. It says even that they're brutal, that they're treacherous, but they have a form of godliness. That's all it is. It's a form. The Greek word there for morphos, form. It's, it's like a mold. On the outward, it look, they look religious. They look like someone that I can trust for politics. Oh, really? That's the outward. What about the inward? The inward, the way they live, the way their hearts are postured, they are opposed to what is godly. 
don't listen always just to what they say. Every generation is like that. And Paul challenges them. He says, have nothing to do with those types of people. Well, that's how the NIV reads. Can I just say that I don't think that he is saying stay away from them completely. Jesus was a friend of sinners. If he had opportunity even to eat dinner in a Pharisee's home, he ate dinner with them. He sought to be kind, but I tell you what, he called a spade a spade. If, if they misunderstood something, if they needed a jab with the truth, he was willing to give it. And generally, he did it when they looked down upon sinners. And in essence, he said, well, you know what? Let's point out something in your life. He was gracious about it, generally. I'm not sure that he's saying stay away from them completely. I think maybe he's saying, and, and literally it means turn away from them. That's how the Greek literally is. Turn away from them. Don't follow them. Don't do what they do. On the outward, it looks nice. But it's when the inward is wrong, the outward is never right. It looks that way sometimes, but it's never right. Why, church? Because what you believe impacts the way you live. And if they're living in a way that it, sometimes it, it's filled with greed, they know how to cover all of that up so that they look good. Maybe they go to church. I'm going I'm to call a name out. You guys are familiar with our past, our past Seminole County tax collector, Joel Greenberg. I voted for Joel Greenberg. There was a large church in the area that backed him. He went to their church, and he was touted as this God-fearing follower of Jesus, et cetera, et cetera, vote for me. And I did what I could in trying to read up on him, and I voted for him. I don't know if you voted for him or not. I did. I don't know if you realize it, though, but he is no longer our tax, he's no longer our tax collector for a really good reason. He is in the process of being indicted on six criminal charges, one of which is child sex crimes. His lawyer is working hard because he's going to be spending the next 12 years minimally in prison. And so to reduce that, even to get to 12, Joel Greenberg, he's been in a lot of, he's been in the den of iniquity. He's just been there. He's seen it. And he's ratting people out. He's trying to, he, he is now their informant. And the, the attorney is wanting him to be able to share and help the police, et cetera, et cetera, to be able to bring down certain crime circles, whatever you want to call them. And by doing that, they're trying to get his, he is trying to get his sentence reduced. But this man claimed to be a Christian and yet his lifestyle, and, and I didn't read a lot, but what I read was like, I just can't believe this. How did we not see this? Because he had a form of godliness, but he denied its power. He rejected it. That word deny is the very same word that's used over here in chapter 2, verse 12, in which it says, 
If we disown him, he will disown us. It is a disowning. I will have nothing to do with that. But on the outside, I go to church. My pastor recommends me, blah, blah, blah. Vote for me. And, and we have a lot of people, guess what? Until I was age 14, that was me, church. Yeah, maybe no sex crimes, but that was me. On the outward, I went to church. My pastors even would speak well of me. But I was lost in my sin. I was dead. I was separated from God. I had a form of godliness, but I denied its power. And I can just tell you, of the 65% in America, there are many who fit this bill, who on the outward, they look so good, or at least they give to the poor, they help, you know, they, they start foundations. Some of them are wealthy on, on you know, hey, we're going to give this amount of money. And everyone was like, wow, they gave a million dollars of the billion they earned that year. But they gave a million, wow, they're so generous. And then people end up dead on their front lawn at the White House. And, you know, it's just, it boggles my mind that people can portray this. But it, it happens even in the church. Pastors, even of local churches, large local churches, the devil has gotten a hold of their hearts and led them astray. I don't know if they are truly saved or not, but they've in, in New York, one pastor well-known in our area found dead from overdoses, and, and you name it, and these types of sins that they get wrapped up in. And I want to be careful here, church, because guess what? That could be any one of us apart from the grace of God. When we take a little baby step away from truth, and then another one, and maybe another little compromise, those little compromises are so slight, so incremental, we don't realize just how far we have actually strayed from the truth until we fall off the cliff. And by then, it's too late, and this man fell off the cliff. Pastor of a large church in Apopka, and my heart goes out to him. I just thought, wow, something happened. And, and it's easy for us to say, well, he was just never a believer. I don't know. You know what? Maybe he was. Maybe he was a true follower of Jesus. But sin hardened his heart. I know for me, in my personal testimony, I had a form of godliness. But I denied and I disowned the very power of that godliness. Because it had not gotten truly had not gotten a hold of me. Jesus was not my Savior. He certainly was not my Lord. But I went to church, and I talked a lot of really good Christianese. I remember when I was in sixth grade, my Sunday school teacher would regularly call on me to answer questions. I always had my hand raised, and I, I knew where to find things in the Bible. I, 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 I knew I pretty much knew a lot about the Bible. Information. But you know, church information, didn't, it never saved me. It was a heart decision at age 14 that said, I surrender to Jesus Christ. That is when the spirit of life came into this dead, this dead body of mine and made that which was dead alive. But you know what? 
it is so easy for us to look around and be duped by people. And I'm not saying that we need to go around, yep, you're saved, you're not, you're saved, you're saved, you're not, you're not, no, you're going to hell for sure. You know, that is not our place. That is God's. But we do need to weigh the fruit. And before you vote for someone, let's do the best job that we And then I realize what in the lower offices that's hard. And I realize that sometimes you've got candidates and neither of them are following Jesus. And I get that. But let's just do a better job in being able to say, you know what? I want a man who is truly godly. That's what I want. And, and, and let me go one step further. Because regardless of where America goes in the political, and I do love my freedom. And if we vote for the wrong people enough, guess what? We will not have our freedoms. If we continue to vote socialist, those that will sidetrack us, that will enslave us. And it has for multiple countries, and it's not just because the Bible talks about it, because that is historically what happens. But you know what? We just like to get to give to the poor. And that's so noble. But guess what, church? The Bible, no, there's hundreds of verses that talk about giving to the poor. Or lending to the poor. Hundreds of them, but not one of those is given to the state, the government. Not one. It's given to individuals and families. It's given to businesses and the gleaning laws, but not one concerning. So I, I, let, me just, let me just say that on the outward, it can seem nice. But if it's not according to the word, it will, like a train going off track, it will it will be destroyed. I remember I was 12 years old. I was in what was called stockade boys at my church. Very similar to uh, Boy Scouts, I guess, but a Christianized version. And I remember standing outside, and there is a train track, and it goes over Marsh Road, okay? And when it, just before it hit Marsh Road, and it was coming from the north, going south, all of a sudden I saw sparks flying everywhere, and the train jumped the track, and landed, what, 30 feet down, off, going a different way. And apparently someone, the, 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 uh, the, the, the train was, what do you call those levers that direct the, the train? Ah, the, the switch had, had been tampered with. And by the time the train hit it, it caused a severe accident. And that's when... People who start veering off course from the truth, there's always destruction. There were so many sirens. There were so many lights flashing over there. Many people died. And I remember as a 12-year-old thinking, this is the biggest accident I've ever seen in my life. Wow. Hopped the tracks and landed 30 feet down on Marsh Road. It, it was a train wreck. And yet, that is many times how people live their lives. It's a train wreck. My life was a train wreck until I was age 14. And it says have nothing to do with them. And, and the reason why I'm hesitant in saying it doesn't mean to completely abandon them, but turn away from them. Don't follow them. Is because we learned last week that there are, there are people who oppose you and we are to gently instruct them. 
And if you look at that command, as well as the life of Jesus, and even Paul, those who opposed him, he sought to be as gracious as he could. Paul did challenge people, but he was constantly seeking to gently instruct so as to do what it says here, so as they might be granted repentance that would lead them to a knowledge of the truth, to an embracing of the truth. Now, I'm not talking about knowing the facts of the truth. That's not how this phrase is used. Six times, I believe it is in the Bible, and it's, and it's specifically about embracing the truth, and you are changed. And so we repent, we turn away from what are lies, and we embrace the truth. You have to repent, turn away from lies in order to do that, in order to embrace truth. But why is this so hard? He tells us here. Number one, he tells us that they're actually drunk with sin. We see that in this phrase, that they might come to their senses. That word literally means to return to sobriety, soberness. <clears throat> it's not used a lot in the New Testament, but here this is the idea that the sin, the lies that they are being deceived by cause them to be drunk in that sense. You would not want a drunkard coming up to you and then telling you how to get to your home. Number one, he doesn't live there. And number two, he's drunk. This person who is opposing them doesn't know the truth, and they are blinded, drunk if you will, with the very lies that have deceived them. So they live in a deception as if they are drunk. They actually are held in Satan's snare. They're held captive by Satan to do his will. That was me and that was you. Me before 14, you before you gave your heart to Christ, you were held captive by Satan to do his will. Scripture goes on. It says that those, we call, they're called sinners, that is, those separated from God by sin, they're called enemies of God. I tell you what, before I was 14, I didn't feel like an enemy of God, but the Bible says that I was an enemy of God. I had a form of godliness, but I was completely lost. I was an enemy of God. I lived in the dominion of darkness. I was enslaved by sin. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 3 that I was blinded by Satan himself. This is how the Bible describes those who are lost in sin. They're the Mike Curtises of this world before 14 lost, duped, deceived by sin. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't tell you I was deceived by sin. Not until my eyes were opened did I truly understand him. But these are the types of people that we're dealing with, that, that Paul is helping Timothy to deal with and gently instruct. He says, these people that, you're, that are opposing you, he says here that they're the types, that, that, let me just back up, the, the people who live the way the first five verses describe of them, those are the types of people who oppose you, Timothy. They oppose the truth. So gently instruct them. But he says those are the types of people, they, they know how to talk so cleverly, flattering. They're so good with their words. They worm their way into the homes of what 
Paul says are weak-willed women. It literally translated means little women. No slight on who wrote the book Little Women. Excuse me. Come on. Uh, Louisa May Alcott, sure, sure. No slight on her and her book. But little women means women who act like children. So some of your translations don't say weak-willed women. It says silly women or foolish women. That's who these women are. They're adults, but they act like little children. They're so easily flattered and so gullible. They're loaded down with sins. And the next several phrases, loaded down with sins, swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning, never able to acknowledge the truth. These, these are talking about these women. And we know because in, in the Greek they're in the feminine and not in the masculine. So it's talking, it's modifying these women. This, these are what they are like. And they are truly only emulating these people, these men who are teaching them. And then he goes on and he says, they're like Janas and Jambres. Now, you are not going to be able to go into your Bible, go to Exodus chapter 6 and, and, or 5 and find those names, Janas and Jambres. Those are names that are written down in Midrash and other Jewish oral traditions that got written down, and they, they actually gave them names. I would venture to say that because Paul uses these names, that they're actually the names of the two court sorcerers in, in Pharaoh's court. They were the ones who, when they were opposing Moses, saying to Pharaoh, let my people go, and he's... And Pharaoh's thinking, who do you think you are? And Moses is saying, I just want you to know who I am, and I am speaking on behalf of the Lord. And so he has Aaron take his staff, and he lays it on the ground. Do you remember this? And what happens to that rod? That rod turns into a snake. And the magicians, Janus and Jambres, they, they say, we got this. Pharaoh, no need to worry about this. That was a pretty cool trick, by the way but we're going to do the same thing. And they took their rods and laid them down. And guess what, church? Their rods turned into snakes. Now, I don't think that there is a snake that has a pressure point on its body that if you press it, it becomes really rigid like a rod. I'm going to suggest to you that this was total sorcery. They were able to mimic the power of God. They were able to portray something false, and it made it look so real. Wow. I think you know the story, most of you, because when those two snakes tried to attack Moses' snake, Moses' rod, what happened to those two snakes? They got eaten. Only to demonstrate, not how snakes like to eat, but rather the very fact that God is infinitely more powerful than all the gods of Egypt. Now these <coughs> Janus and Jambres then continued to oppose Moses and say, hey, we can do that trick too. We can do that trick too. And then finally, with I believe it was the third plague, they stepped back and they said to Pharaoh, we don't know how to do that. We can't do that. Surely this is the finger of God against us. Wow. Read Exodus chapter 7. And so 
what, what just amazes me is that people will oppose truth, but they're so good at deceiving people. They're so good at looking genuine. And Paul is, in essence, saying, you know what? Pull the mask off. Look beyond the form. Look beyond what you see on the outward. And look at the heart. They have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. On the outward, it seems that they have the same kind of miraculous power as Moses himself. Paul encountered someone like this. I don't think that uh, Elymas, if you were to turn to Acts chapter 13, I'm not sure that he necessarily did a miracle there, but he is called a sorcerer, actually a Jewish sorcerer. And Paul realizes that as he is trying to witness to this Roman official by the name of, let me find his name here, um, Sergius Paulus, that Elymas continually interrupted, continually said, no, 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 this is what the truth, this is what the truth is, constantly stepped in to keep Sergius Paulus from believing in the one true God and in Jesus, his son. And Paul finally turns to him, and I'm sure at this point he had been trying to be so gracious, proclaiming truth, and Elymas just constantly coming at him. So again, let me just say this before I read. The general rule is we are we gently instruct. But there are times in which even Jesus laid into the Pharisees and called them whitewashed tombs, and he called a spade a spade. Paul is not saying to Timothy, never do that. It's just that the general rule is, guys, look, we win them with love. We win them with gentleness and graciousness. But there comes a time in which we may have to say, it says, then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. So this isn't just Paul's anger rising up. He looked straight at Elymas and said, you, you are a child of the devil. In essence, the phrase we use today, he says, you are a spawn of Satan. That's exactly what spawn of Satan means. Child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You will be going, you are going to be blind, and for a time you will be unable to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him, meaning Elymas. And he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, saw this, or saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. I'm, I'm sure he was amazed by what suddenly happened to Elymas, but what Luke tells us is he was, he was really amazed at the truth that Paul was teaching. Church, I'm going to tell you this. If we can present truth, there is something in the heart of man, as broken as it is, who wants that truth. I believe people, 
there, there is something in them that, that longs for a life that's different than what it, they're experiencing right now. And the brokenness that they're experiencing right now. And Sergius Paulus, yeah, he saw the miracles, but he was amazed at the truth. God broke in. The light of the gospel broke into the darkness in Sergius Paulus's heart. The light was turned on. He believed. He embraced. He was born again. He was birthed into new life. And God had set him free. <coughs> I'm going to close with this. <coughs> years and years ago, I had an amazing, amazing professor. I loved him. His name is Doc, His name was Dr. Krabendam. I say was. I don't know if he's still alive or not. This, this was back when I was, this was more than 30 years ago, okay? 40 years ago. It was 40 years ago. And Dr. Krabendam, he was a Dutch Reformed pastor. He would talk like this, and he would, he would lean on his desk, and he would twirl his glasses, and he had that accent of a Dutch reformer, and he, he would talk and he would teach like this. And it was, there was just such a seriousness about him. And, and I just, I loved him, right? When, when this man prayed, he would invite some of the students into his study, and he had no fear. He, was, he came from such a reformed traditional background, but man, he would get on his knees, and he would literally cry there in his study, praying for eyes to be opened, for God's gospel to go forth, that people would repent, for students to wake up and realize that some of them have a form of godliness, but they're denying the very power of it. And the reason why I'm sharing this with you is because Dr. Krabendam wasn't always like that. As a matter of fact, he went to a reformed seminary. He got all of the, he got all of the doctrine, and he was started his first church, and he's preaching away, and the elders say, you know, why don't we have a revival? Which is a little bit unusual in a Reformed church, but they have a revival. And he's preaching the revival. And at the very end of the revival, however many nights it went on, he's giving an altar call, and there is such a conviction in his spirit because he realized that he himself was not born again, and he answered the altar call, and he gave his heart to Jesus that night, the pastor of their church. What a form of godliness, but denying its very power. Wow. May, may God give us grace. The church, we do not play any games. Elemis thought he had truth. Elemis thought that he was able to lead Sergius Paulus in the right direction. Somehow Elemis became Sergius Paulus's counselor and right-hand man, right-hand deceiver. And God just, in essence, said, you know what? Enough is enough. No more. I'm done with this. Paul spoke very prophetically the judgment of God, and Elemis was moved out of the way. And Sergius Paulus realized, this Jesus rose from the dead. This Jesus was God stepping into this world to rescue me. What do I do about that truth? And his heart at that moment was surrendered to this Lord of life. Jesus, what a powerful name it is. 
It's in God's nature to restore, for the desert to bloom, for people's lives to be changed, not for it to be stuck in darkness and remain there. That is the power of the gospel to change it. Too many in our, our generation are touting, I'm a follower, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm part of that 65%. Well, I don't know what the actual percentage of people who are truly born again, but I wouldn't doubt if it was below 20% and maybe even far less than that. I don't know. I've heard figures at 10%, but who are we? We can't read someone's mind. The truth is, church, we have the truth. We are called to live the truth, and as we do that, as we shine that truth by what we say and by what we do, the world will be impacted. And that by God's grace, he will lead people to repentance unto an embracing and an acknowledgement of the truth. How sad these women here are said to always be learning, but never coming a knowledge of the truth. I could have been there, but God was too gracious. I, I'm so grateful for that. But as we're witnessing, realize, don't be duped by people who just say, well, I'm a follower of Jesus. Constantly share truth. It's not our place to judge, but constantly share truth with them. Share the word. Live the word. And let God Father, I want to thank you for the power of your word. Lord, I thank you that it's in your nature to restore and take that which is broken and fix it and mend it. To take that which is broken down and minister healing. To take those who are blind that they would see again. Those who are lame that they could walk again. Those who are lost in sin to be freed from that sin. This is your nature, God. And I'm just asking you, Lord, show us. Help us as we shine the truth, like Paul instructed Timothy, to be able to call a spade a spade, but be, be able to do it gently, to, but to be able to speak truth regardless and call people to follow Jesus regardless. Father, too many in our day, they have a form of godliness and they deny its power. And I just ask you, Lord, give us wisdom. And may we constantly speak truth into that cauldron of lies that people have gotten mixed up in and deception. Lord, give us great boldness in our day. We are in the last days. Show us and equip us how to speak to this culture, Lord God, and call them out of darkness so graciously, so lovingly. And Father, would you please bring about such a revival, such an awakening in our day as your people are rising up unafraid to stand on the truth, but graciously and lovingly speaking to this culture, speaking to these people, Lord God, and calling them to follow Jesus and him alone. Set those people free, Lord God. Set America free and ignite a fire that changes this country forever. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, God bless you guys. Look forward to seeing you.